Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, Paul here. As you may have guessed by now, there's a bit of language coming up and some descriptions of hunting and fatal accidents that might not be for everyone. Coming up, poaching ramps up as hunters fight over territory. You know, you used to wake up in the morning and open your arms up wide. Whatever was out in front of you was all yours, and that's how you looked at it. But things get out of hand. You know, I was an asshole in those stages because I was only young and fearless. I saw out of the corner of my eye a guy lift a rifle, so I swung the machine round and started heading away and... Next one out there is Baldfuck. Corners are being cut. They took a very dumb view of it. They couldn't see any funny side to it at all. My wife took a bit of a dumb view of it too when they knocked on the door. And all the everyday dangers are still there. People used to say, must have been really glamorous and everything else and all the rest of it. And I said, no, it was bloody hard work. And you got to go to a funeral every three weeks. I'm Paul Roy. This is Deer Wars. Episode 8, Getting Away With It. In 1979, the national government sanctions tax breaks for deer farms. That means deer, previously worth only three or $400 each, begin to fetch astonishing prices of up to $5,000. Crews can earn ten grand for a morning's work, but only by pushing their luck. Inevitably, there are more accidents. Poaching takes off too. Almost everybody does it, although some take it much further than others. I started in the beginning. I went from truck driving, dropping deer off, hanging the odd dead one up, and then after a week, the guy that was shooting got hurt. And so I got thrown in the deep end straight away. I started catching deer. Welcome to Opotiki and Milton Koori and his band of brothers in the North Island. Throughout the series, you've heard me flying around the South Island, not far from my home. But of course, deer culling, venison recovery and live capture take place all over the country. No more so than in the vast Uruwira, Kaimanawa, Ruahini and various state forests. There's lots of work and adventure for the likes of Milton Koori, a tough, likeable, no-nonsense sort of guy. I was shooting for um, Joe Collins, it was when he first started. He was only two weeks into um, flying a 500. Done his 50 hours, which was the norm then. And then he was told to go and catch some deer. It is worth making a note of the name Joe Collins, a legend in his own lifetime, who epitomised the popular cowboy image of aerial hunters, but at great cost to others. We caught a couple of deer and we had no nets, and he says, I was tying a deer up, and he says, get in, jump in, jump in. 
And so I jumped in the machine and there was a, about an eight, 10 point stack running around the sheep track. He says, jump on it. Okay, so I jump out on that long skidded 500, out on the end, just stood there hanging onto the handle. And just before I went to jump, he just kept going straight into the side of the deer. Helicopter tipped on its side. I got thrown off, but I ended up hanging onto the skid with one arm. And he kicked the helicopter around in a circle, shot out backwards, and then he spun around again, and I ended up with the skid in between my legs, hanging onto it like this, about four or 500 feet over the top of a gully. Let's take a moment here and take that in. Milton Koori is hanging from the skid of a helicopter at least 400 feet off the ground. It's the stuff of movie stuntmen, Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible or James Bond. But this is no stunt. It's for real. And in the end, I just started shaking the skid. Anyway, we went down and landed and uh, he apologised and, um, and that was my first day. Milton's not scared off and it's not hard to see why when there's such good money to be made. It was the beginning of farmers stocking their farms. So they were at the gate with suitcases of money wanting to buy deer. So we never had a problem. You gotta remember in the Muldoon era, there was tax incentives for selling deer. So every accountant and lawyer, anybody that had some bucks was in on that deal. And then the prices increased. Guys would turn up, might be 10 or 15 deer there, grab them, pay for them, and you just keep going. You know, Joe, I'd say, wouldn't even know how many deer he sold. I worked for, with him for nine months and we caught 750 hinds. So there was a lot of deer that went through that dark room. Now remember, the dark rooms where the deer are placed to calm down after being brought down from the hill. But they can still be highly stressed and prone to dying, with such big money on offer and more buyers than they can supply deer for. The invitation to poach is irresistible to most. You know, well, we all did it. You didn't really call it poaching. It was just, um, you know, you used to wake up in the morning and open your arms up wide, and whatever was out in front of you was all yours. And that's how you looked at it. And the only thing that brought you back to reality was, um, you know, with the handcuffs on and, and the dock. You'd get up an hour before daylight, tape the helicopter up, fly in the dark to wherever you're going. We used to fly for over an hour. You'd land and you'd tape the registration over. you just tape it over so whoever's on the ground will see you and there's no identification, so there's no conviction. You know, and then uh, we got away with that for years. Wait till daylight, go out, catch a deer quickly. If you're greedy, you catch a couple and then uh, out of there. It was, um, it was safe, you know, you're out in the grass, you're out in light scrub, the pickups are only a short strop, so it was done pretty safe. And, and it was a good change from 100 foot chains and tall skinny slips and death to find pickups and you know, so it was, a, it was good to be able to get out on um, somebody's um, back paddock and cause mayhem. So basically you'd be poaching at the, at the far end of someone's property, yeah. close to the bush, presumably, is that how it Well, when, you know, to find poaching, it's, it's wild deer out on some other person's property. So, you know, so, so all you're doing is, is going out on his place and taking a, a wild deer. But it's classed as um, illegal hunting, so... I can talk for that because when I finished up, I ended up with 16 convictions for uh, aerial hunting. So I'm an expert. A lot of them were, were quite small fines, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000. But the last one I got was 10,000. 
I think they had 35 charges against me. The morning I got caught, they monitored uh, eight helicopters in the same area that I was in, and they left them all alone except for me, and then um, waited, and then uh, they pounced on me when I brought some deer in. I asked Milton if the cockies whose farms they were taking deer from were pissed off. Oh, yeah, they were, they were peed off in those days. Yeah, they hated it because they were ma- making money from it too, and we were, and our two clashed, so w- one had to go. And once a week, I'd have a phone call from a, from a cocky and, and he'd just abuse me. And I had them front up at the door at home, you know, and, um, and come in three or four of them and just give you a little warning. And that's one of those things, being out of the game, that you don't miss. You know, I was an arsehole in those stages because I was only young and fearless. I think, honestly, if me and Kay never had kids, she would have left. But it was the kids, you know, our responsibility to, to look after them. And we just hung in there. And now you're just, you're just thankful that you did hang in there. You know, 35 years, it's a long time to live with me. <laughs> <laughs> By now, some of the older, experienced pilots are leaving the industry. But new ones are appearing on the scene all the time. And of course, the other thing too is that every time you pick the paper up, there was a helicopter caught poaching or one crashed and... And uh, there's court news about one. It got a lot of uh, attention from the media in the early days, and a lot of people wanted part of that action. There were guys from Auckland that would come down with a 300 pilot, 50-odd hours, bring them into the game, and uh, away they go. They're in the industry, and then they see what sort of money they're making, so they'll go and get it themselves a helicopter, and then away they go, and then it just snowballed. I started flying when I was quite young. John Bellaby is flying light planes at 16, but by the time he gets his chopper licence, is still pretty green and young, just 22 years old. Did my fixed-wing licence. I was fencing for a guy and doing his work and shearing a few sheep and what have you, and um, he owned an um, aircraft hangar in Rotorua. So um, I started working in the hangar when I was 17, and one day this helicopter landed a couple of guys hopped out because I used to quite enjoy hunting. And um, yeah, so that was my first exposure to a helicopter. So I sort of determined then that I was going to do my helicopter licence and get into it. So that's what I did. There was bullets and then guns and blade, rotor blades. And I thought, yeah, that's a bit of me. And I didn't really want to continue with the aircraft engineering and I liked the flying. So that was it. Put it all straight into the live capture. So I had a grand total of about 110 hours helicopter, I think. and. And uh, I got a job with a, with a guy and he said, look, you come and be my pilot. But I never met him before, just done my licence. So I picked up the helicopter from Taupo, flew it to Papariki, landed, a guy came out with a net gun and a rifle and I thought, oh, he must be my shooter. He was the owner and he said, swap seats, boy, I'm the, I'm the driver. So that's what I did and I got chucked a net gun and a rifle and we sort of lurched under the air and we flew around for a couple of hours and um, luckily we didn't actually see anything. And when we landed, we sort of bounced along the ground and. I sat there and I thought, wow, this is an experience, and I asked him how many hours he had. If I recall correctly, it was about 11 and a half. So, you know, I had 110 <laughs> at that stage. And I thought, my gosh, you know, this is the blind leading the blind. <laughs> I had a few good scares, actually, and I decided that, hey, this was, this was going to end in tears, you know. So um, I hopped in the driver's seat, and then his son started shooting for me, actually, and he was... 17 when he started. So it was still the blind leading the blind, it was good. <laughs> so you took over the pilot seat, but you still weren't vast experience. 
What was your sort of learning curve like and how did you get on? Uh, well, yeah, it was a steep learning curve. So basically, um, because once again, I had a not experienced shooter and I wasn't experienced by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, we started catching the odd deer and we started shooting a few, um, not enough to probably make ends meet. Um, but I sort of learned what the helicopter could do a little bit more. And it's a bit like learning how to ride a bike. And after a while, you know, you can pull a wheel stand without going over backwards sort of deal. So um, I sort of learned a little bit more about the helicopter, about what sort of weight you could carry, what you could do with it and what you couldn't do with it. And um, you have your near misses and some, some instances where you think, man, how do we get away with that? I mean, that shooter fell out of the machine and broke his arm quite badly. Um, and that was just probably a bit of an experience on both of our parts. So, you know, that was him naked for quite a while. He had a bad, bad broken up. But um, those, are, those are the sort of things that you learn on the job and you think, well, I'm not going to get in that situation again. So, John, in those early days, when you had those sort of scares and stuff, did you ever think to yourself, oh, maybe this is not the right business to be like, just going flyers or not? No, 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 I was 22, I was bulletproof. <laughs> And John, do you think in those early days, did you need a certain amount of uh, luck to, to survive? No, you had to undergo an operation, you had to have half your brain removed. <laughs> no, yes, there's a lot of luck involved. Uh, you had to throw caution to the wind often, and when you're young, you know, you don't, you never think that you're going to crash or die or anything like that. So when you're young, you just get in and do it. But they were wild times, they were good times. There was just a freedom to it, there was no paperwork, there were no radios, there were no doors, there were there was just get out there and do your stuff. And you had no one training you, you had to do, you know, it was on the job training. And it wasn't really until I actually got teamed up with an experienced shooter that, that things started to gel. Yeah. It really helps new pilots to have a shooter beside them who knows the ropes. Milton Curry. You know, the thing is about helicopters is when you sit down on that seat, you cannot have any, anything going on outside in your life. I mean, you may do, but when you do it properly, you, all you think about is your pilot is sitting beside you, you want him to come home and you want yourself to come home. You know, I worked with one pilot once. I said to him, we saw this deer and I said, just come in, come in low on it, stay to the left-hand side of it. And then just as you get down, come up. And, and uh, well, he come roaring in and he, and, he, and he balls it up. I said to him, fly right out here, now turn around. And I said to him, this is what, exactly what I wanted you to do. He says, hey, mate, you do the shooting and I'll do the flying. And I said, OK. I said, oh, let's, look, we've had enough anyway, let's go home. So I waited for him to turn the helicopter off and, I, and then I went over to him. I said, hey, mate, you've got two options. Grab your jacket, get in your car and disappear. I don't want to see you again. Or, or, or the, the second one is you can hang around and learn from all the experience I've had and live and do well in this game. And that guy says, sat there, looked at me and shook hands and says, OK, turned out a really, really good pilot. As it turns out, I've got my own pretty good pilot here, Harvey Hutton, who's been in the game a long time. So I asked him, who really calls the shots? The pilot or the shooter? The pilot always had control. He always, you know, he was the one that did the yelling and that when they were missing him. And uh, yeah, the pilot always made the decisions how it was going to, how you can do your pickups. And, and but after a while, once you were a team, a real, you know, you hardly spoke to each other. You, know, you knew exactly what each other were doing. 
Yeah, I think it was Dick Deaker or someone, so, and one of us mobbed. They'd, see, they never spoke a word all day. Yeah. Just, yeah. And they'd, you know, using hand signals and stuff. Or, well, and um, all that jazz. Alan Duncan and his shooter, they, they wouldn't speak for weeks. Because <laughs> you started off as a shooter. I think you told me once. Um, what, what were you like as an actual shooter, Harvey, when you started? Um, yeah, I wasn't that great when I started, but... How old were you? I was probably 18. After you know a couple of years, I said, you know, I could hit him. Every shooter has a good day and bad days, you know. But you know, when you're on form, you're really on form. And nowadays, I'd be hopeless because I'm not agile enough to, you know, move around and and um, like I still hit him. And did you have experienced shooters with you? Were they a help as well? If you oh, had yeah. any... some of the shooters I had was real, real good, and some thought they were good. <laughs> <laughs> Some new pilots learn to take advice, but others just aren't interested. Remember Milton Curry's story of flying with pilot Joe Collins? When his first day shooting is almost his last. Joe has a reputation for fearless. Others would say reckless flying. He certainly takes risks others won't. He lives life right on the edge, but others often pay the price. I meet Donna Elmago, one of Joe's ex-partners, at her cottage outside Opotiki. In 1977, Donna and Joe are living in the Bay of Plenty, but they head south to Hokitika, seeking adventure, and they find it. The plan was when we went to the South Island that we were going to go down there, work hard, save up, get his commercial pilot's licence, and um, buy 500 and come home as soon as. A 500 is a Hughes 500, a helicopter commonly used around this time, much more powerful and suited to this game than earlier choppers. When we first went down, I wasn't quite so much involved, you know. It, it was just a matter of getting the fuel where it was supposed to go, towing the caravan to where it was supposed to go, um, support crew for, for the helicopter and um, cheap cook and bottle washer. And then as time went on, Joe had enough of chasing various truck drivers around the place. He said, righto, you can be the truck driver then. But it's not long before Donna finds herself doing far more than simply driving the truck. Usually Joe would gut them on the hill because it was a waste of bloody money flying guts out, you know, it was just dead weight. But I'd still have to do heads and legs and everything. When the boys came in, they'd help me throw them all on the ute and then I'd just go to the chiller and stand on my beer crate so I could reach the rail and hang them up and record all the numbers and away we'd go again tomorrow. Because I never knew of anybody else that did it, not any other woman. And they all used to stand around and laugh at me and they'd used to wait. They'd say, one of these days, Donna, you're going to cut your bloody hands off because I was left-handed. But I managed quite well. I used to carry a good old box of green ribbon boning knives behind the seat in the ute and I used to have a really fine blade on my knife Messy work, but you got used to it, you know. I mean, once the blood had dried, you could only get so much on. And um, if you, if it was a really cold day, you could sit there with your um, feet in the deer and your hands in the deer, waiting for the next load to come in, keeping warm. But it won't surprise you to learn that Donna ends up on the mountain as well, dragging heavy carcasses around and preparing them for pickup. She's a small woman, only around five foot or a metre and a half. I'm still not sure of how she manages it except sheer willpower. And on the odd day, Joe would say, oh, well, I'm going to need you up on the gut heap, so I'd go on that. But I think the pilots used to feel sorry for me, you know, because I'd sit up there in the snow and I'd be fear rattling, you know. <laughs> it was so cold. 
I just used to get the loads ready and when the machine came in, I'd just have them already stropped up and I'd just put them on the hook and away they'd go and then you'd go out on the last load. I was actually quite a good shot with the, with the armour line, um, 223, because it was short and it fitted me. Nobody else's rifle, I couldn't get my arms around them. So Donna and Joe are living the life, boots and all. And that extends to time at the pub. Oh, so it was a drinking culture, all right. I mean, it was practically every night, the Fox Pub. The boys used to roll it into the pub and um, John the barman at Fox had had them all the drinks lined up on the bar and I'd be covered in blood from head to toe. My um, yellow pants would be red and my gum boots would be red and my jacket and all the blood would be dry on your hands. Of course, we didn't have um, early shutting, closing in those days. It just went on as long as there was somebody there to drink. But there was an awful lot of drinking went on. And Donna, what do you think all that drinking was about? I think it just helped them just to relax. You know, it didn't matter that half of them were still drunk in the morning when they got up to go, but I think it's, a lot of them had been sober they wouldn't even got on the machine in the morning because they'd had that many frights. And I think that's what it was all about. Donna and Joe work hard for some years on venison recovery. Joe gets his licence and buys a machine as planned. He graduates from venison to the high-risk tar and chamois recovery. But the deer are getting harder to find, and the return's marginal. So they decide to give the North Island another go. And although Joe has already got a reputation for pushing his machine hard and risk-taking, up north he takes it one step further. One of the reasons that we came back from the um, South Island from the West Coast because um, we'd run out of animals to shoot down there. Chamois and tar had been pretty well cleaned up and we were getting to the stage now where you could go for a shoot and probably only get about three or four animals and it wasn't economic. So um, quite a few of us packed up and came back to the North Island, mainly to Apotiki, and um, had a bit of a tidy up here and that lasted about three years on the shooting. And while we were just finishing that off, we got on to live capture. And we'd sort of mucked around with it a bit down south. Um, we'd tried doing it with darts, but the, all the technology wasn't really up to scratch. And, or else we'd just sleep out of the machine and bulldog them. I'm presuming, I don't know if you ended up, I don't, I don't, you didn't do any bulldogging yourself, did you? Not heavy enough. <laughs> yeah, no, not, I can't. Not big enough. <laughs> <laughs> when we came back here, we had one machine, um, HOU, and we got all the net guns set up for that, and got the bags made, the nets made. Um, we had a fisherman in a podokie, and he knew how to make nets, and we got... So Podokie Engineering was making all the weights and everything for us, and we just got stuck into it. Every day it was fine-tuning. We had um, hoods for, to go over the deer so they couldn't see, and we had the straps for the legs, and you just got into it. In theory, Donna and Joe are in the right place at the right time with their own helicopter and the live capture industry about to explode. But Joe has his own way of doing things. And Donna is searingly honest about this. Well, all the 10 years I was with Joe and me and quite a few others spent a lot of time keeping them on the straight and narrow. 
but he had no regard for rules, regulations or anything else. He just thought they didn't apply. And all he wanted to do was fly. That's why we had two machines, so he could get out of one and fly the other, regardless that you could only do 1,200 hours a year. He could probably rack up 1,200 hours in a, in a month, but he just wanted to fly. But he was on the edge all the time, and a lot of the time he went over the edge. And I don't think he was destined to be long-lived. He just wanted to do what he wanted to do, and if he died doing it, well, that was it. We've talked briefly about poaching before, but if ever someone's got the personality for it, it's Joe Collins. It was very prevalent, and in Joe's case, it was extremely prevalent. The first machine we bought up from south was HOU, that was red and white, that was our original machine, and then he decided that he needed two so we could keep flying. So we bought HQV, which was green and white, and it was very shortly afterwards painted dark blue, dark green, and red registration. But 99% of the time, the registration was taped out, and that was the coaching machine. It was very difficult to see in the bush. He used to have um, little spots where he could put the machine down and, down and hide under the canopy and wait till it all cooled down and off he went again. It just absolutely drove me nuts. I couldn't get my head around it. I, I wasn't in agreement with it at all. I said to him, and I said to him several times, look, if you're going to do it, let's do it properly. We've got too much invested here. Why do we have to do it this way? But that's how he'd always operate. Joe treated the whole thing as a game. You know, you got up in the morning and the big thing was to outwit civil aviation, you know, and they did it 99% of the time. But when they caught up with him, they came down on like a ton of bricks and they hounded him and they wouldn't leave him alone. Joe isn't the only one trying to outwit this system. For some time, I've heard stories of pilots getting others to set their final written exam for them. But it's only been since I've talked to Civil Aviation Officer Neil Scott that I've had it confirmed. There was a chap by the name of Steve Keenan who uh, undertook to do the exams for several of his friends and he masqueraded as them and he, uh, he went to different uh, testing stations like they hold these exams at the whole, in those days it was probably um, three or four places, Westport, Tokatika and Greymouth on the coast and there'd be Christchurch, Ashburton, and a lot of places on this side of the Alps and um, to make sure that uh, the chap in charge of doing the exams I uh, didn't recognise him doing them for different people. He, he chose to do the exams in different uh, places, so I'm not sure how many uh, exams he sat, but there was a considerable number. And I do recall that, uh, I don't know once again how uh, he originally got trapped, but um, during the process of the court case, it became fairly obvious it was him. They had a uh, handwriting specialist from Wellington uh, down, because in those days the exams were handwritten, uh, when computer generated like they are now. Of course, he just compared the handwriting of one exam and said, well, how does that match this guy and this guy over here? And so uh, it was about four or five or half a dozen maybe uh, people he had sat for and, uh, and got a pass mark. He must have known what he was talking about. I actually located Steve, much to my delight, and he agreed 
a bit reluctantly, to talk to me. Sitting in his garden, 40 years after his prosecution, I asked him why he had done it, and his explanation rang pretty true to me. On the other hand, perhaps I've been on this story too long. These guys were brilliant pilots. They were practicable. They hands-on, they could do the job like no one else. But it was just the academic thing where they slipped up. You know, they were mates and I endeavoured to help them out. And to me, it was no problem. And I'd go to another centre where no one knew me and I'd go and sit the exam for them. And they had a, they'd have a different paper on a different day, so I got to see a bit of the South Island. In hindsight, it, it might have been the, the best thing to do, but at the time I didn't really see the harm in it just because of the, the nature of the work. The exams, you know, often were basically irrelevant to the job. Working at the equitime point between Auckland and Melbourne, you know, it didn't apply to flying in the middle of a field and catching deer. There was just that variation between our upbringings or background. Like, academically, I could nail all the subjects at flying school or British, you know, to me. You know, principles of flight or air tech or met or navigation or law, that was just like a piece of jam for me to ace those exams and there was the other side of the coin a lot of those guys that were coming through the system had left school young maybe got a job in the mill were keen on ground hunting and eventually got into shooting on helicopters and were trying to progress up the ladder and take on flying on their own course and you know they weren't academically brilliant but these were guys that were practically brilliant So I, I went in and set these exams for four of my good mates and, um, you know, it was all done and dusted and sort of five years down the track. Obviously annoyed somebody that somebody had got their licence, you know, not the case of way. So the next thing I had the police knocking on my door um, and eventually charging me with every one of these papers that I'd set and... Uh, the consequence of it was that I'd been fined fifteen thousand dollars by the court, and cost me about twenty-two grand from the lawyer's bill, and it was, you know, it was a lot of money at the time. So they didn't see the funny side, and even that was retrospective. No, they took a very dim view of it. They couldn't see any funny side to it at all, and, and uh, my wife took a bit of a dim view of it too when they knocked on the door. It's kind of history now, but. You know, I wouldn't condone it today. You wouldn't get away with it, but in them days it was a different era. People talk about those days being the Wild West days. I mean, it sort of a little bit was the Wild West days, didn't it? Those sort of things didn't really matter that much when you're flying in the mountains. Absolutely. There was no rules and regulations like today. Like, the things we done as a matter of course on a daily basis back then, I mean, anyone that works for OSH today would have a heart attack. You know, it was, it's, just, it's just a different era and the things that, that we've done as a, as a course of our work, they're just, you know, poles apart to the New Zealand we live in today. You know, we, we knew that we weren't going to get rich doing this, but we were going to have a jolly good time. Joe Collins may enjoy the chase and the buzz of poaching, 
but his fearless flying comes at a cost, which makes it hard to make a profit. You never get rich when you've got helicopters. You know, they cost that bloody much to run. I used to have about three sets of blades lined up waiting for all the blade strikes. Tail rotors were another thing. And the maintenance was exceedingly high, especially when Joe was flying, because there was always heavy landings or shot holes in blades or shot holes in skids or something going on. So you just had to have a, a lot of backup behind you just to keep them in the air. Let's take a moment. Donna has just mentioned shot holes in blades and shot holes in skids. I've heard of a few disgruntled ground hunters or enraged cockies shooting at helicopter poachers. Once even a local attending his marijuana crop in the bush who didn't appreciate a chopper being about. But John Bellaby, who we heard from earlier, has first-hand experience. So we were there and we saw a hind and I came zooming in to meet the hind and we were probably about 50 or 60 metres away and I saw out of the corner of my eye a guy lift a rifle. So I swung the machine round and, and um, started heading away and next minute there's bald fun. And it went right through the helicopter, did quite a bit of damage to the helicopter and hit my mate in the rear end. So um, he sort of got thrown into the chin bubble and I quite a bit of yelling and screaming, you know, and I looked behind and I could see a great big hole in the, in the seat and I thought, wow, you know, that's, that's him naked. But um, he had a bit of a feel around and he realised he's going to live, you know, so he wanted to go back and reap his revenge and I said, no, I think we'll affect our escape. So luckily it hit the helicopter first and it went through the transmission, peppered all the fuel tank, it did quite a bit of damage to the helicopter and then it hit Roger in his rear end and it hit him in the back and it slid up his back. He's very lucky he wasn't killed actually. So we flew a little while longer, we landed at a mate's farm in the back country there and checked out Roger's rear end. The police got involved in that one. We went to the High Court in Gisborne. So the person appeared in court and he admitted to pointing the rifle but not pulling the trigger and he was represented by the guy that represented Terry Asia, the QC. So he managed to basically get him off in a nutshell. So he just about got away with murder. And was he uh, like a cocky or a ground shooter? Or... He was a cocky. He was a bloody good shot too. That's really dangerous. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. That's taking it too far, you know. And it wasn't really his deer, and it probably wasn't our deer, but you know. At times, it really is the Wild West, egged on by the possibility of huge money. Although, this doesn't seem to be a motivator for either Donna or Joe Collins. Money has didn't really matter much to Joe, and money's never really mattered much to me either, as long as you always had enough to, you know, do whatever you wanted to do. It was just the thrill of the game. It was a game for him, and all he wanted to do was fly. As long as he had enough to put fuel in that machine and fly, that's all he was happy with. So what sort of competition were you guys facing in terms of other operators in the live capture industry around this area? Um, there were seven at one stage operating out of the Potaki, but well, sometimes ten. But everybody seemed to get themselves sorted out and have their own little places where they hunted, you know, some more than others. And Joe got more than most because he was in the air most and he was prepared to take more risk to get them. This is at the heart of Joe Collins both his success and his downfall, and eventually becomes a bridge too far, even for Donna. 
Well, to tell you the truth, I never really worried that much about Joe. I always used to think he was bulletproof. He did too. I was more concerned with the people that were flying with him that were likely to get hurt rather than him. And he did that many close calls and just came up smiling. So it, it never really worried me. But it really hit me when he had his big accident and he broke his back. That was the first time ever. And we'd had that many close calls and he'd had to walk home or we'd had to go and find him and everything else and he'd always be fine. So I guess I thought, you know, he's never gonna die. Enough was enough for me when after he'd had the big crash and the two boys were killed. To me, that was completely unnecessary. Ben Hutchings, he'd actually come to see me about two weeks before and he said, I can't do this anymore, Donna, I've got to get off the machine. Joe is not safe to fly with. He said, but because he's looked after me, I'll do one last trip. And he did the one last trip and he was killed and he had a young family. That really upset me. I said, that's it, I've had enough. I, I just want out. I always say that I got the best 10 years of Joe. I would have tried a bit harder with Joe, I think, to sort of keep him on the straight and narrow, because when he was, you know, doing that, he was brilliant. He was a very talented man. He was a great artist, photographer, he could write stories. He was really good, but the trick was keeping him on that line. Um, I really enjoyed it. It sort of rocked me a bit, you know, because you sort of remember the bad times as well. You think you've put it all behind you, but all of that stuff brings it back again. And you start thinking to yourself, you know, was it that good after all? Or did you really do that? And, but then, you know, I think about it a bit more and I really don't regret it. I just feel a bit sad about some of it. Inevitably, Joe's luck runs out. He's killed in a helicopter crash in 1996. Coming up in our final episode, the last days of the live capture era. Lots of guys got killed. Well, we knew most of them. We all knew that sometime it could happen. No, 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 this is not going to happen to me. But it's all about to come crashing down. The carpet had been pulled out of the Queen Street Farmer. It was gone, finished. And I don't want to go back to it. I've had enough of it. And we look back on one of the wildest periods in New Zealand history. You look back and it, it had a severe effect on both of us. I've been through that industry and I, I loved every minute of it. But it's time to move on. That's next time on Deer Wars. Deer Wars is written and presented by me, Paul Roy. It's engineered by Alex Harmer. The executive producers are Katie Gossett, Justin Gregory and Tim Watkin. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. <laughs> 